and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Hello, I'm Holly Huffnagel, AJC's U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism. Over the past few years, we have witnessed a rise in anti-Semitism at home and abroad. Yet we know that nearly half of Americans are not even familiar with the term anti-Semitism. It's up to us to educate about all forms of anti-Semitism from conspiracy theories to Holocaust denial to anti-Israel activism that crosses the line into Jew hatred. It's up to us to speak out to ensure that combating anti-Semitism remains a high priority for our leaders. It's up to us to push back against anti-Semitism, hate, and disinformation, and to safeguard our democracy and our democratic values. AJC is leading the way. I hope you'll support AJC before year end. If you give to AJC now through December 31st, a generous donor has offered to double your contribution up to $350,000. To support AJC today, please visit ajc.org backslash donate. Greg Bluestein is the political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, or as we like to say around here, the other AJC. He is with us now to discuss the hotly contested runoffs for two Senate seats in Georgia, which will determine whether Republicans hold the Senate majority or whether Vice President Kamala Harris will be the tiebreaker in votes along party lines. Greg, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's pretend this is a game show for a minute and introduce the contestants. Who is running against who? Yeah, it's very confusing. Okay, in one corner, you've got Senator Kelly Leffler, who was just appointed to the office last year by Georgia's Republican governor, Brian Kemp. She is probably the wealthiest member of Congress. Her husband owns the Atlanta-based financial platform that runs the New York Stock Exchange. That's how wealthy they are. Her and her husband spent at least $30 million on her campaign in the first round. So she's a Republican running against Raphael Warnock, who is the pastor of Martin Luther King Jr.'s historic church, Ebenezer Baptist Church in downtown Atlanta. And he was recruited to run by top state and national party leaders, including Stacey Abrams here in Georgia. That's one of the races. The other race is Senator David Perdue. And this is for a full six-year term. The first race is really just for two years. Whoever wins will have to go back at it in 2022. The second race is a six-year term. David Perdue is running for re-election. He's a former Fortune 500 chief executive, very conservative, one of the first senators to endorse President Trump back in 2016. He's running against John Ossoff, a 33-year-old former congressional aide who runs an investigative journalism firm, grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, Jewish, highlights that on the campaign trail all the time, and ran for Congress in 2017 in that $60 million record-setting special election. He ended up losing to Karen Handel by four points, but said, I'm not giving up politics, jump right back into it, and won a crowded runoff back, it seems like eons ago, but back in June to win the, the party's nomination and run against David Perdue. Okay. Well, before we dig much deeper, I do want to remind our listeners that the American Jewish Committee, this AJC, is a nonpartisan 501c3 organization that does not support candidates for elected office. We simply talk about them to keep our listeners informed. In fact, my colleague Dove Wilker of AJC Atlanta has met with all four Senate candidates for conversations. 
So I want to start with a recent poll that found 55% of those who identify as very conservative say they are not voting in this runoff election because they believe the voting process is rigged. And now President Trump will be in Georgia, I believe, on January 4th. He's raising these concerns, too. But could he change their minds and get them to the polls anyway? Well, this is what keeps Republicans in Georgia up at night, is the fact that the president's conflicting messages, him saying, go vote in what he calls a rigged election, even though there's no evidence whatsoever of that happening. Let's make that clear. There's no substantiated evidence at all that this election was rigged, that there was any sort of widespread voter fraud, any sort of systemic irregularities. But the continuing harping on that message is sending signals down to the rank and file Republicans not to bother with casting their ballots. Some of them believe the president's falsehoods. Some of them want to send a message to Republicans like Governor Kemp, who they're upset that, you know, they didn't do more to help the president reverse his election defeat in Georgia. And some of them are just, frankly, just overwhelmed with all the messaging anyway. And there's a lot of voter exhaustion in Georgia uh, from both sides of the aisle. So that's what the Republican Senate candidates are trying to combat, is the falsehood that the election doesn't matter, because, of course, it does. What has been the turnout for this runoff so far? Is it higher? Is it lower? So far, it's been staggering. It's been astounding. So there's no evidence at all of some sort of lag. Certainly, there will be Republicans and Democrats who stay home because they're overwhelmed by it all and for various reasons. But right now, we're at more than 1.7 million people have cast early ballots, mostly in person. Georgia has a three-week early in-person voting period that started last week. And so it's going to taper off a little bit because of the holidays this week and and probably next week, too. But last week, it was basically at near presidential levels. It's only off six or seven percent from presidential turnout in October at the same time just a few weeks ago. So that gives you a sense of how Georgians are viewing this. They're taking this seriously and they realize that the stakes are incredibly high here. Well, what does account for that high turnout, though? I mean, the stakes are always high. Well, the stakes are higher than ever now, and I think that's safe to say. I know that this is the most important election in history, but in Georgia's case, that's not far from the truth because control of the U.S. Senate literally hinges on these two races. Republicans right now have a 50 to 48 advantage. If Republicans win one of these seats, they continue to control the Senate. If Democrats flip both of these seats, it's 50-50, and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris gets the deciding vote. So Senate controls on the balance, and by extension, that means the fate of Joe Biden's legislative agenda hangs in the balance. That's why more than $450 million has been spent here in Georgia on TV ads. That's why there are small armies of grassroots canvassers going door-to-door, encouraging hardcore Democrats and hardcore Republicans to get back out there and vote. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is a lot of money. Uh, let me turn to the Jewish vote in Georgia. We understand that the Jewish population in Georgia is oh, more than 150,000. Now, our own surveys show about 70% of Jews vote Democrat, 30% vote Republican. I think in Georgia, you know, I spoke with Dove about this, it's closer to 55, 45 in a tightly contested election. I mean, do you agree with those kinds of numbers? Does that sound right? That sounds about right. I think it skews a little bit more Democratic, maybe 60-40, but it's hard to pull this population because, as you mentioned, it's relatively small compared to the size of Georgia. Yeah, well, and that Jewish vote is primarily in Atlanta, I believe. But are there key counties that really matter here in this runoff? Yeah, the Jewish vote's concentrated in North DeKalb County, which is probably the most important Democratic county in Georgia, and also in the suburbs of North Fulton counties and East Cobb counties. And of course, there's Jewish populations in Savannah and Augusta and Macon and Columbus and scattered throughout the entire state. 
but they're primarily concentrated in northern metro Atlanta, kind of where I live, in the 6th District, the district that John Ossoff ran unsuccessfully for three years ago. And as you mentioned, about 150,000 or so throughout the state. But when you're talking about election margins that are so thin, President-elect Biden carried the state by about 12,000 votes. It was the second, second thinnest margin of any state. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's cliche, every vote matters. But that's why these candidates are pushing at the margins of these votes. They're trying to rev up the Jewish community. They're trying to rev up the Asian American community, which is also larger than the Jewish community, but also historically a, a smaller block of voters in Georgia. And so they're trying to make sure that they can push across as many votes to the finish line because this might come down to half a percentage point. Mm-hmm. Now, before the November election, AJC did a pre-election survey that showed Jewish voters were concerned about the pandemic, health care, the economy, race relations, crime, foreign policy came in last, which could include Israel, but not necessarily. And much has been made about Raphael Warnock's past statements on Israel. Can you tell us a little bit about that and whether it matters? Yeah, first about the foreign policy, especially this past year with protests for racial equality, with the pandemic raging and claiming so many lives in Georgia around the nation. I understand that the voter population in Georgia, as well as the rest of the nation, was focused more inward than outward. When it comes to Reverend Warnock's past statements, he's made a series of controversial remarks on the pulpit that Republican Jewish groups and Senators Kelly Leffler and David Perdue have seized upon trying to claim that he is anti-Zionist and that he's even anti-Semitic. He has pushed back vigorously against those claims. He's written open letters to the Jewish community. He's had, he's had very high-profile Jewish supporters write open letters and take out ads in the Atlanta Jewish Times and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution saying that they stand with him. Basically, some of them amount to his concern about Palestinian rights and what he viewed as Israeli hardline policies that he was worried about. And he said those over the pulpit at Ebenezer Baptist Church and other venues over the years. But he also has very staunch allies in the Jewish community. And he's campaigned, or he's appeared with, I should say, over the years, long before he ran his campaign, launched his campaign, with prominent Jewish leaders like one of the rabbis at the temple, one of our most historic synagogues here, and has a deep well of Jewish support. But aside from that, he also has John Ossoff, who is Jewish, as I mentioned earlier, and has been running in tandem. And both of them have highlighted kind of the odd couple scenario that they have, the black pastor of Ebenezer of Martin Luther King's historic pulpit and the young Jewish son of an immigrant from Australia running together basically as a joint ticket. Republicans, of course, have continued to, um, as they're expected to erase this polarizing and this tight, have continued to remind voters of those remarks that he's made, either by ads on TV, digital ads, press releases, all that. It is just a onslaught from all sides Okay, so we've talked about what's dogging Warnock. (laughs) Let's talk about his opponent, Kelly Loeffler, and what's dogging her. She's been endorsed by Congresswoman-elect Marjorie Taylor Greene, who during the campaign espoused QAnon conspiracy theories. I know she's distanced herself from that since. But Loeffler also posed for a widely publicized photo with a renowned white supremacist who marched in Charlottesville. She says she didn't know who he was. Does an endorsement by a fellow Republican even matter? It's tough because... At the time when Senator Leffler got Marjorie Taylor Greene's endorsement, she was in a heated, basically a primary against a fellow Republican, Doug Collins. It was a special election with 20 candidates. But by all means and purposes for her, it was a primary. And so both of them were heavily courting Marjorie Taylor Greene. And it was funny in the, in the run-up to this, you know, I was getting all the text messages and the behind-the-scenes chatter about all this. 
And look, I mean, they knew that Marjorie Taylor Greene's endorsement would come back to haunt them if they ended up getting into the runoff. But at the time, it was more worth it for them. It was more valuable to them to try to use it to beat Doug Collins. And I mean, as I wrote the day that Marjorie Taylor Greene won the Republican nomination in Georgia, she said she'll be the worst nightmare for Democrats, but she could well prove to be the worst nightmare for Republicans because of all her incendiary comments, racist, xenophobic, anti-Semitic statements and videos over the years that are there for people to see. And so that's continued to dog her among Democrats. But if this is a base turnout election. So, you know, Democrats have been using that to rev up their supporters, just like Kelly Leffler has been using those sermons we just talked about to rev up her supporters. This is not a battle for the middle. This is not a battle for the unpersuaded, the fence sitters. The candidates aren't spending resources and time trying to get those voters out. They'd rather spend their resources and time trying to get the 2.5 million or so people who voted in November to get back and vote. And that's why this factors in. Chester Doles is the guy's name who she appeared with. Her campaign said, we didn't know who he was. They disavowed him and all that. But certainly Jewish groups, left-leaning Jewish groups, have made it very clear to their supporters that Kelly Leffler posed with him. You know, he showed up a second time at one of her events. And, and that has continued to reverberate in the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he's not your garden variety bigot. I mean, he spent decades in the KKK and the Nazi National Alliance. He did prison time for beating a black man in Maryland. He marched in Charlottesville. How did they not know? And he's injected himself into politics here in Georgia. And you know what? It's a hard question. I was not at that event. You know, I don't know if I'd recognize him, right? Because he shaved his beard. And at that event, he had covered up his tattoos with a gray sweatshirt, it looked like. And I know, too, that, you know, lots of people show up at these events. Hundreds of people will be at the event I'm at later today. But at the same time, this is someone who had been kicked out of an earlier event from hers, her campaign staffers were aware of this because we wrote about him, you know, and, and this guy has also been trying to inject himself into politics in Georgia. So, yeah, it's a good question. You know, they said that they had no idea and they promptly issued a statement to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution saying they rebuke everything he said and they disavow him. But certainly that continues to be an issue that folks here are talking about. So, okay, let's talk about the other race. We will start with Leffler's Republican colleague, Senator David Perdue. He has been accused of enlarging his Jewish Democratic opponent, John Ossoff's nose, in a Facebook ad, declaring that Democrats are trying to buy Georgia. Is this viewed as a liability? It was at the time. I mean, so much has happened since then. It's hard to keep track of everything in Georgia. But this popped over the summer, and it was something that John Ossoff responded very forcefully to. David Perdue's campaign said that it was basically a subcontractor who had been let go, that David Perdue had nothing to do with signing off on the ad. And, you know, in big campaign operations, that's believable. I have no idea if that's the truth, but it's believable that the candidate himself is not personally going through each of these ads. But look, it reverberated. It hit a nerve in the Jewish community here in Georgia. And it wasn't the only, you know, uh, a controversial statement or action that the Perdue campaign has done over this cycle. Later on, the senator knowingly mispronounced Kamala Harris's name at a President Trump rally. And John Ossoff came at and said, look, this is not the first time you've tried to mock the other, right? Try try to make fun of people who didn't look or sound or appear like you. And he brought back up that ad distorting his nose. How are some of the topics that we've discussed, Israel, uh, white supremacy, black liberation theology, stereotypes, how are these conversation topics affecting the relationship between 
the black and Jewish communities in Georgia or even broader, the Jewish and non-Jewish communities in Georgia? I mean, is it driving a wedge? And perhaps is that wedge a conscious political strategy? I think just like in so many communities, evangelical Christians in Georgia have allied themselves with the pro-Israel forces in Georgia. Georgia has this, and Dove has probably told you about this, but Georgia has this very kind of tortured political background in that Jewish Georgians kind of distanced themselves from politics through much of the early 1900s after the Leo Frank trial, you know, uh, basically a century ago. Um, And really it was the 1958 bombing of the temple, one of our most storied synagogues that awoke many Jewish Georgians to the fact that they should speak out more against hatred and intolerance. I think overall there's been this alliance between Christian conservatives and pro-Israel forces in Georgia. That alliance is shaken ever so often when you've got pictures of white supremacists rallying around or posing with Republican figures. But at the same time, I have not heard any Republican Jewish supporters denounce Kelly Leffler over that. You know, high profile ones who say they're no longer going to support her. At the same time, there has been hundreds of Jewish Democrats who have written open letters and signed signed petitions and whatnot, um, saying that they support Reverend Warnock. So Another angle that I'm just thinking about right now is John Ossoff, he entered the race with the support of not just John Lewis, but also Hank Johnson. And Hank Johnson was the congressman who replaced Cynthia McKinney, who had said anti-Semitic things over the years. And Hank Johnson was supposed to be this new era of democratic politics in Georgia. But Republicans have also made note of his controversial statements about Israel over the years as well. So I think there's this, this tangle that Republicans have plenty of fodder to hit Democrats over Israel, and Democrats have plenty of fodder to hit Republicans over Israel. And I think, in a way, they just kind of just converge and, into this messy ecosystem. Does that mention of Israel or that harping on Israel, though, kind of create that othering scenario that you talked about, kind of othering the Jewish vote? It can. It can other the Jewish vote, especially as you have, you know, otherings of Muslims. I mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene, who claimed in one video that there was going to be an Islamic takeover of the U.S. because two or three incoming Muslims were elected to the Congress a few years ago, right? And that's something that is still happening on the campaign trail, not from the senators, but from some of their surrogates and some of their supporters, is that there is this kind of dialogue about the othering of of people from other backgrounds and religions. And then on the Democratic side, there continues to be pushback on, as we mentioned, on Reverend Warnock's statements. And Ossoff has come out in his defense, but Ossoff also is not, even though they're running as a joint ticket, he's also focused on his own campaign. Mm -hmm. Well, all eyes on Georgia, Uh, (laughs) all minds on Georgia. It is just constant. Every single day, I was up to 1 a.m. last night, or this morning, I should say, writing some of the latest stories in Georgia. So this race continues to evolve, and it'll be really fun to watch what happens. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Melanie Marimpel, AJC's Managing Director of Regional Offices. Melanie, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thanks, Sefi. 
Friday nights at our Shabbat table are like one big giant exhale. And I always look so forward to that time when we can just sit back and breathe. And it's funny to me how much I appreciate Shabbat during these strange times when we're hunkered down, because it used to be that I appreciated the break from the running around and juggling work and travel and family and soccer practice and all of those things. And now there is virtually no running around as we stick exceedingly close to home all of the time. And yet we still need that break and that big exhale at the end of the week when we can stop and just chill out a little bit is really important to me. So a few things happened over the last week or so that are on my mind and on which I'll be reflecting this Shabbat. Some of it is troubling, some of it is uplifting, and all of it feels very heavy. On the troubling side, I'm still a little bit rattled by a very disturbing anti-Semitic attack that occurred here in Kentucky where I live. This happened over Hanukkah. I live in Louisville, which has the state's largest Jewish community, although at about eight or 9,000, large is obviously relative. The second largest Jewish community is in Lexington, which is home to the University of Kentucky, which by the way, has a Jewish president and a Jewish student center and is home to the Chabad of the Bluegrass. And Chabad organizes an outdoor big community menorah lighting in Lexington outside the Jewish center, just like they do in communities around the country. On the third night of Hanukkah, a car pulled up in front of the gathering crowd and someone in the car started yelling anti-Semitic slurs. And one of the Chabad members stepped out in between the car and the crowd, which included children, and the driver plowed the car into him, grabbed him and dragged him for about a block. The victim was hospitalized and he's thankfully okay, but the assailant was not caught and the whole community across the state was really horrified. And thankfully our elected officials, the governor, the mayors of Louisville and Lexington, the police chief, etc., were all very swift and clear in their condemnation. But the fact that this happened and by the way, the same Jewish student center had also recently been vandalized. So it's just kind of shocking. And it's another reminder that with this one very close to home, that anti-Semitism is alive and well, and that it can be violent and dangerous. So these crimes get reported, but what happens to that data? And is it part of a larger picture? And do we have enough data to really understand the magnitude of the issue? Because these things do sometimes happen in isolation, that there's also this aggregating effect and a totality that we need to understand when we talk about fighting anti-Semitism. An incident here or there, okay, we can maybe dismiss, but when you add them up, the story becomes much more clear. And when you take the data from all hate crimes, not just anti-Semitic hate crimes, but all hate crimes, it becomes even more essential. So that's why AJC has been leading the advocacy for the passage of the federal No Hate Act, which passed the House and we continue to push for passage in the Senate. The No Hate Act is important specifically because it provides resources to states that promote better hate crimes data collection, as well as creating a more informed approach to hate crime prevention at the state, local, and federal levels. So we know that better data can help inform policy and can lead to better prevention, and we think that's crucial. It's an issue on which AJC has advocated also through our Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, both through our national council and through regional councils. And here in Louisville, we have a Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, and we met this week with a state senator who, along with one of his Republican colleagues, he's a Democrat, has pre-filed an enhanced hate crimes bill for Kentucky that we, as the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, will be lobbying to pass 
when the state legislature convenes in January. So we want Kentucky to send a message, especially in the wake of these anti-Semitic attacks, that hate has no place here, that we reject anti-Semitism, and that we know our state has been going through a very deeply painful racial reckoning, and we haven't even scratched the surface there. So these actions at the state level and at the federal levels really matter. And having elected officials pick up the mantle and speak out matters. So that's very much on my mind. But I also can't stop thinking about something else that is much more uplifting, although still quite heavy. The co-chair of our local Muslim Jewish Advisory Council is a man named Dr. Muhammad Babar, and he's an immigrant from Pakistan. He's a local physician who specializes in geriatric care, and he's the founder of a local mosque called Muslims for Compassion. And he also leads our mayor's Compassionate Louisville project. He's an extraordinary man, and he exudes this deep humanity that can kind of take your breath away. So in addition to everything he does for the community, he's a frontline medical care provider who has seen the devastation of COVID firsthand countless times. And this week, he got vaccinated. And ugh, the emotion I felt and still feel at the image of him, this man who is protecting so many and who is so deeply dedicated to uplifting the humanity of others, getting protected himself is just really overwhelming to me. So on this Shabbat, let this be the beginning of the end of this insidious coronavirus and let these efforts to combat hate and anti-Semitism create some inoculation against the viruses of hate. So I hope we can all exhale together and that next week may feel a little bit lighter. Well, that's a beautiful blessing for all of us, Melanie, and thank you for sharing those beautiful reflections. Manya, what about you? Melanie, Sefi, at our Shabbat table, we will be discussing one of my favorite superheroes of all time, Wonder Woman. As you've no doubt heard, Israeli actress Gal Gadot is bringing us another installment of the contemporary Wonder Woman series on Christmas Day. This time, it's Wonder Woman 1984, which I've read filmed its opening scene in a shopping mall, the quintessential headquarters for those of us raised in the 80s. Now, I heard about the movie once again last night when my daughter Rose came home from preschool, asking if we could watch it the day it's released. Her teacher, who dressed as Wonder Woman for Halloween, is also a big fan. But Rose is not familiar with Gal Gadot's portrayal of Wonder Woman. She has not seen the movie from 2017. No, she watches the show starring Linda Carter that first aired in the 70s, the one I watched as a kid. Now, I still follow Linda Carter to this day, but on Twitter, and all of her posts make me smile. Her philanthropy, her political activism, she's still a force to be reckoned with. And her fan base? Huge! She inspired so many young women to use their powers of intellect, compassion, empathy. Seriously, my favorite episodes of Wonder Woman are when she outsmarts her love interest, Steve Trevor, and befriends the villains, neither of which requires a supernatural power, a magical accessory, or a bulletproof bracelet. I asked Rose recently what she liked best about Wonder Woman. She immediately answered, her golden lasso, of course. Why, I asked, because that enables her to lasso the villains like a Wild West cowgirl? No, she said, because she can make the villains tell the truth. Music to a journalist mom's ears. Now, for those familiar with the show that aired in the 70s, you may recall the primary villains were the Nazis. Steve Trevor and Diana Prince flew together on missions to Germany and Argentina. I had forgotten that plot line of my youth. And I must admit, the first time I heard my children on a playground screaming, Get him! He's a Nazi! I thought twice about the bright idea of introducing the show. Not a great look for someone who co-hosts a podcast for the American Jewish Committee. But that aside, Wonder Woman has led to important and difficult conversations about whether Nazis still exist today. The answer, sadly, is yes. And why we as Jews should be particularly concerned. 
We've talked about the threat of anti-Semitism and how to balance that threat with the immense pride we have as Jews. And we've talked about how Wonder Woman, this woman from an island hidden in the Bermuda Triangle who couldn't fathom why anyone would want to declare war, how she used her powers of compassion and genius, her brain and her heart, to champion peace and truth. So yes, at our Shabbat table, where we will be serving Peking duck on Christmas Day, we will have just watched Wonder Woman. We will talk about how Gal Gadot, an actress from Israel, the Jewish homeland, portrays this timeless character. And we will talk about how Rose will apply kindness and intellect, her superpowers, to make the world a better place. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Hmm, well, it is for us. Sefi, what will you be talking about? Well, I have been a major consumer of Israeli TV for years now, and I'd be glad to discuss Shrugim or Chatufim or Bnei Arupa or Shtisel or Fauda, etc., etc., with any of our listeners. But over the past couple of weeks, I just binged two different Israeli TV shows, and they both left me breathless. So here, from me to you, for these long winter nights, are a couple of TV recommendations. First, Tehran on Apple+. Plus. Tehran is the kind of heart-pounding, white-knuckle thriller fans of Fauda have come to associate with Israeli shows. Mossad agent Tamar Rabinian lands in the Iranian capital to carry out a mission, but things go wrong right away, and she has to fall back on her wits and the Farsi she learned growing up in Israel as the daughter of Persian emigres to survive and maybe, just maybe, carry out her objective. The second show is much more grounded, making it much more powerful and no less thrilling. Valley of Tears on HBO Max is about the 1973 Yom Kippur War, in which Syria and Egypt began a war by sneak attack on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. Israel was caught totally unawares, and in the early days, it looked like the country might be crushed between this Arab pincer. The show follows the events in the Golan Heights, near the border with Syria, on those first dire days of the war. And woven into the military narrative are different types of love stories. A father's love for his son, best friends for one another, and the classic romance between two young lovers. The show paints a rich, textured picture of one of Israel's darkest hours, and it's an absolute must-watch. Now, both of these shows engage in different ways, with the somewhat complex place that Israelis from Middle Eastern countries hold in the state. Tamar in Tehran is only able to do what she does because she is Iranian. She isn't an Israeli pretending to be Iranian. Her heritage is fully Iranian, and by the way, fully Jewish and fully Israeli as well. And that's for a show based in the 21st century. Valley of Tears is based in the 1970s, and some of its main characters are members of Israel's Black Panther movement, who, inspired by the American Black Panthers, used guerrilla tactics to try to elevate the status of Middle Eastern Israelis in society. So, while we all wait for our vaccinations and pass the cold winter days, you could do worse than to pick up one or both of these gripping, engaging, interesting shows. I promise, they'll give you something to talk about at your Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. 
Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.